And at the end, let's pray for the passage. Thank you, Father, for what you've been showing us from your word. Thank you that your word is so well written, with narrative that's brilliantly composed. And we thank you for the blessing of studying your word and seeing how you work. And so as we continue to look at you, the God of Samson, we pray that you would show us more of yourself and of your ways and help us to know how that relates to our lives and the way we live for you now. Speak to us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. At the Reformed Theological College where I teach, we have a large staircase leading up to the second level and up the side of the staircase uh, is the series of college photos that have been taken since 1955. It's one of the most popular places for visitors to stop on the staircase and survey this great sequence of photographs. If nothing else, it's a fascinating study in the history of men's hairstyles. <laughs> Beards and moustaches. We've been through some pretty hairy days. <laughs> but it's also disturbing if you know the story behind some of the faces there. Some who once studied at the college now no longer walk with the Lord. Others believe that their lives have become unstuck. I know one doing time for pedophilia. I know several whose marriages have broken up. I know people who have burned out in ministry and others who have been instrumental in churches splitting. It's pretty sobering. A theological education is no guarantee of lasting faith or usefulness. Being useful to the Lord now is no guarantee of always being useful to the Lord. I say that because this final chapter in the Samson story is similarly sobering. The guy who was always in for a rollicking good time, the ladies' man with spirit and power biceps, the fellow who was always living on the edge, now comes completely unstuck. And it's important to know the time frame. This is 20 years later. We read the end of chapter 15, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines and we read at the end of chapter 16 he led Israel 20 years. In chapters 14 and 15 what we noted were the events that led to his prominence as a national leader. And now in chapter 16 we read of his demise and his death. In between these two chapters are 20 years where we have no record of, activity, of his activities, but we understand that he was a national leader. We understand that he led Israel. He didn't lead them away completely from domination by the Philistines, but he led them in opposing, confronting Philistine rule. But now, 
after 20 years of national leadership, becomes completely unstuck. That suggests that we never outgrow the danger of a fall. In fact, in some ways, the danger can increase over time. But though he comes unstuck, God's plans don't. So let's look at how the story unfolds, and this chapter has four main scenes. First of all, scene one, Samson sleeps with a prostitute in Gaza. He goes down to Gaza. What a stupid move. The capital of Philistine territory. Why go to the heart of Philistine territory when you're public enemy number one? And why go to a prostitute? Does this man have no moral scruples at all? It was bad enough at the beginning of his time when he fell for a Philistine girl, but now to spend the night with a whore? Well, the Philistines hear that he's there. They expect him to stay the full night. And so they're ready to attack him at daybreak. But Samson doesn't wait for daybreak. He gets up at midnight, goes to the city gate, rips them up from the ground, somehow mounts them on his shoulders, and carts them off to the top of a hill. We're not exactly sure which hill this was, but wherever it was, this was a mighty act of power. Astounding strength. The city gate would have been a massive stone structure. Not a bad prank, eh? <laughs> he escapes attack. Gaza is left exposed, humiliated, and with a very large repair bill. For the second time, a bad liaison with a Philistine woman gives way to the humiliation of the Philistines. <clears throat> but because sin works out well sometimes, it doesn't mean it always works. God's grace may last us a long time, but we must never presume on <laughs> it. Don't let God's grace in the face of your sin embolden you to sin more. Now you've told some white lies and it really hasn't led to any great problem. It probably helped in the situation. You've had fun flirting at work. It's all under control and it's just fun. You've only had a little dishonest gain financially. You haven't been caught with porn yet. Kind of lazy, but so what? I mean, it's all going okay. In fact, while you dabble in sort of minor infringements, at least in the way that you calculate them in your mind, God seems to be blessing you. Think you're going well, you're careful, you're going well in church, and you're engaged in a ministry, which is 
proceeding quite nicely. But remember, people don't usually fall in one hit. When we moved to the house in which we presently live, there were some beautiful hibiscus plants in the backyard, a number of very large hibiscus shrubs. They flowered magnificently. But we noticed after a little time that one whole section of one of these hibiscus plants died off and then fell, dramatically fell. And then shortly after another section fell and the whole plant was gone, followed by the next two or three hibiscus plants we have in our backyard. We now have none. But with each, the issue was the same. There was dry rot in the roots. And so although they grew tall and flowered magnificently, it was inevitable that one after the other they fall. Sin is dry rot in our lives. And you might flower and blossom and grow and look very good to everyone else for a time, but don't presume that you can quietly, secretly, perhaps, carefully if you like, sin and not eventually face consequences for it. Some Christians have seen try to get as close to the edge that they possibly can without falling. And we are asking for disaster if we do that, presuming on God's grace. So I come to scene two. Verses 4 to 22. Samson now plays with Delilah. This is the next woman. Everything's gone fine with the first two. It seems things have turned out well. But Delilah, well, she's kind of another category of woman altogether, it seems. She is the archetype of the temptress in Scripture. She's a well-known character in art and music and theatre. And Samson falls for her head over heels. Delilah is bribed by the Philistines to find out the secret of his strength. She has bribed a massive amount of money. We're told at the end of uh, chapter uh, of verse five that each of the rulers, and earlier in Judges we learned there were five rulers of the Philistines, each of the rulers will give eleven hundred shekels of silver to Delilah. That is a massive amount of money. In the next chapter, ten shekels plus food and clothing is given to someone as an annual wage. If 10 shekels of food and clothing is enough to live on, 1,100 shekels times 5 is a vast amount of money. In our terms, probably millions of dollars. So Delilah gets to work. And she is not subtle in her approach, is she? <coughs> time and time again, she tries to find out the secret of her strength. And she sets it up, stands in the first time to her Smack, bang, and he's free again. And he kind of enjoys the game. He toys with her, he flirts with her, he eggs her on. Oh, we'll try fresh flags. 
and tie new robes. Try tying my hair into the loom, and with that one he is edging closer and closer to giving away his secrets. And her advances continue, you don't love me. We've come heard that line before already in the story, and we classic manipulation. And Samson could have walked away from it. Samson could have just walked out and said, Don't be ridiculous, woman. He could have come to and said, What on earth am I doing here? But he was seduced by sexual infatuation. Sin, this is frightening, I think. Sin can be like a powerful grip on our lives. So although we know it's utterly insane, we don't do anything about it. Although it is completely irrational, we press on, hoping against hope, reasoning against reason. And Samson's particular sin here is just so very contemporary, isn't it? We are swamped by sexual temptation and sexual images. And we live in a society where it's very easy for us to play with sexual temptation in the way that he did. Some of you here know that sexual immorality can become like an idol in your hands. And that idol will demand more and more sacrifices until it takes you down completely. The Samson, this was not the first time that a woman had manipulated him into telling a secret. And now he falls for giving away a much bigger secret. What was the secret? Not so much his long hair as what his long hair pointed to. His long hair being that symbol of his commitment to the Lord. He puts it so plainly to her. He's set apart to God. He's been consecrated. He's God's man. And his hair is the symbol of the vow that has set him apart for God from birth. And in giving away that secret, he breaks his vow to God and he forsakes his calling. As he sleeps in her lap, his locks are cut off. And when he wakes, there's a new secret. There's something he doesn't know. It's in verse 20, and it's one of the saddest verses of the whole narrative. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out of the forest, shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. How tragic. He assumed that the God who had empowered him and enabled him time and time again would be there for him always. He assumed that he could get up and be strong as he had been every other time his life was threatened. But God is able to withdraw his presence from us. That's what he's done. 
for Israel. He had withdrawn his friends from them. He handed them over to their enemies. Because of their sins, he had withdrawn from them. And now, because of Samson's sin, he withdraws his presence from them. That's why we must not presume on God's grace. If you play with sin and compromise your relationship with God, don't presume that God will always be there for you. It's possible that God will leave you. It is possible that he will leave you to your folly. That he will withdraw some of the wisdom that he's given you. Some of the provisions that he's made for you. Some of the usefulness that he's granted to you. And you wake up one morning and you realise your life isn't a mess. You realise you're far from God. You're way off track spiritually. You feel very distant from God. It's possible for a preacher who's once been powerfully used of God to lose his effectiveness. It's possible for whole churches to lose their spiritual vitality. Indeed, there are entire denominations that are spiritual dead wood. God has left. So Samson is now left to his own pathetic weakness. The Philistines seize him. They gouge out his eyes. And they put him to work to grind grain in prison. The work is blameless. The hero is utterly humiliated and Delilah is paid handsomely. But the greatest tragedy I think when someone falls from grace is that God suffers dishonour. God's name is money. And so we see that in scene 3, verse 23 to 25. Samson is now mocked by the Philistines. It's an awful picture. The Philistines worship Dagon, praising their God, their non-God, for the victory that they think he's given them over Samson. Dagon, oh Dagon, we praise you for giving us victory over Samson. We praise you that we've captured him, we've gouged out his eyes. Oh great Dagon, we honour and worship you. And Dagon, uh, Samson might not have been able to see, but he could hear. How painful that must have been for him to hear this idolatrous worship. Isn't it true? That when Christians fall, non-Christians love it. Doesn't the media love getting on <coughs> to a failing, a moral failing in a Christian leader? You see, when we fall, it's almost not only brought on us, it's brought on the name of God and on the cause of Jesus Christ. God's name gets dragged through the mud. And that surely is why Satan 
tired of Christian leaders. I think Christian leaders are particularly vulnerable to Satan's attack because if Satan can, can fell a leader, a pastor, a, a key figure, he can do great damage to the cause of Christ in one blow. Ultimately, Satan's beef is not with you or me, we're just small pride. Job heard that there's something going on in the heavenlies. And Paul speaks of that as well. A battle in the heavenly realms. And the evil one hates the work of Jesus Christ and rages against his church and would love to take us down in order to dishonour God. So Samson is now mocked and paraded before the Philistines and his strength, the sacred gift of God, now becomes a plaything and they bring him out to perform tricks for them. God's power is made the laughing stock of the heathen. But though God's name may be dishonoured, God always has the final word. And we come then to the last in verses 26 to 31 Samson now calls for God's aid one last time and before we look at this I want to take a flashback to chapters 14 and 15 in chapters 14 and 15 we saw a pattern and the pattern went like this Samson fell for a woman he gave away a secret he came into conflict with the Philistines and then he cried out to God for help. That pattern is now repeated pretty well verbatim 20 years later. He falls for a woman, he gives away a bitter secret, he comes into greater conflict with the Philistines and this time loses instead of wins. And he cries out to God. <laughs> now, as I've said all day, this narrative is like a mirror that's held up for the people of Israel to look at and see themselves. And they would have seen themselves very clearly in this pattern. They had fallen for foreign women and embraced the false gods of the nations around them. They had given away their commitment to God. They had come into conflict with the nations around them, which is why they were being subdued by the Philistines for 40 years. And they should have cried out to the Lord. Remember this part of the judgment cycle that was missing at the very beginning of the Samson story? There was disobedience, there was discipline, God was raising a deliverer, but there was no desperation. They didn't cry out to the Lord. But now, as the mirror is held up to them, they see the one in whom their natural life is reflected, desperate, eyes gouged out, pathetic, mocked. And he cries out to God. He prays. He prays that God would strengthen. Oh Lord, one last time, 
give me that supernatural strength. And God grants it. I believe God grants it for the honour of his own name because this is the very campaign that has been God's plan all along. God empowers him one last time so that his phantom stands between those pillars. He has the supernatural strength to push them apart and the whole mighty stone structure comes crumbling down on him and thousands of Philistines and all those standing alone. There were more killed in his death than in his life. Remember? One lion, 30 men, a thousand men, 3,000. God has the final say. The Philistines do not go home praising Dagon. They go home grieving over thousands of dead. <coughs> Friends, God does hear the cries of his people. He wanted his people to cry out to him. He wanted them to seek his mercy. He wanted them to seek deliverance. He wanted them to be so desperate under foreign oppression that they would want the Lord and seek him above all else. That's what the Lord wanted to stir in their hearts. He wanted that because it is his purpose to save. It was his purpose to raise up Samson to save Israel at that time. And now he has purposed through his own son, Jesus Christ, to save us. And that's the start of the Samson story, the nativity scene, uh, of almost irresistibly makes us think of the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. So the death of Samson, in a striking way, prefigures the death of Jesus Christ. Doesn't it sound familiar? The one mocked becomes the conqueror. Strength displayed in weakness. Victory through tragedy. Triumph through death. But of course the death of Jesus Christ brings not the death of others, but the life of others. Through him many are saved. Throughout the Old Testament, God is relentlessly paving the way to his ultimate redeemer, his ultimate judge, his ultimate saviour. He's he's unhurried. It's over thousands of years. But he's working towards the one through whom he will work for salvation for his people. And the book of Judges teaches us that God uses the most unorthodox kinds of saviour. And how true that is of Jesus Christ. Israel at that time was looking for a military leader. A capable, kingly Messiah. And God gave them a suffering servant. 
one who gave his life a ransom for me, one who paid for our sin himself, who took on himself every folly, every compromise, every moral failing, all our stupidity, all our wickedness and evil, everything you've seen in Samson and all you see in your own heart taken upon himself that he might bear our sins and pay for them in full. We can now find in Jesus Christ astounding grace. Sins like Samson can be forgiven. Sins of presumption, folly, and compromise, and immorality. No sin is too large for God to deal with. No sin is too hideous to be covered by God's grace. And Jesus Christ is not only able to remove from us the guilt of our sin, but he alone can break the power of sin. There's a lovely line in the hymn that you might sing. You know the hymn over a thousand tons to sing my great redeemer's praise. And there's a lovely line in there that says, he breaks the power of cancelled sin. You get that? The sin is cancelled. The debt is paid for. The penalty is removed. But it's more than that. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He alone can start to work from us from the inside out and utterly transform us and change us. The, the problem we have is we always want to bring change by rules and regulations. We try to impose things on ourselves. Well, I've got to become more self-disciplined. I've got to say no to that. And, I, and I've got, and, I've, and it becomes about us. And we fail time and time again because we cannot change our own hearts. What we desperately need is a new heart. We need new desires. We need new passions. And that is what Jesus Christ can work in us. He came to break the power of cancelled sin and therefore renew us and change us and make us new people. He came both for our inward cleansing and our heart transformation both for our justification and our sanctification both our forgiveness and our renewal maybe today you'll see yourself in the mirror maybe all this talk about Samson has prompted you to see some folly in the way that you're living. Maybe it's exposed to you compromise in your own life that you've been trying to cover over and minimise. Maybe you've been led to see that you're presuming on God's grace. If you have, if you've seen those sins in the mirror today, 
I hope you've also seen the God of Samson. A God of power. A God who wants his people to cry out to him. A God who has a plan to save. A God of amazing grace. So go on, cry out to God. Cast on him those things you struggle with. Tell him of your need. Don't try and cover it up. Don't just try and fix it yourself. Don't do a DIY job. It will never work. Catch yourself on the Saviour that he sent. Lean on him totally. Plead with him to break the power of cancer's And remember what matters. What matters is not uh, the size of your voices, nor your track record in ministry, nor the extent of your service. What matters is whether you have faith in Jesus Christ. I say that because of the last thing the Bible says about Samson. You know the last thing the Bible says about Samson? It's not in the book of Genesis. In the book of Hebrews. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. The writer of Hebrews has been recounting the great men and women of faith. And he says, what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets. There he is, he's in there, Samson. He's in there, he gets his name to Hebrews 11. How long? <coughs> well, it tells you verse 33. I don't have time to show you about these and these other guys who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions or in some cases ripped them apart, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword. Why does that get into Hebrews 11? Because when push came to shove, that's exactly what it did come to. Samson believed in God. He believed that God was a God of power. He believed God could strengthen him and enable him and give him victory over the Philistines. And so the New Testament does not remember Samson as a man of moral compromise and failure. The New Testament does not point to Samson as a thug and a womanizer. The New Testament remembers him as a man who despite his failings that it doesn't even mention believed in the power of God cast himself on God and with God's enabling did God's work. 
Isn't that fantastic? You say you believe in grace. That's grace. And I think that is the most marvelous way to be remembered. I would love to be remembered as a guy who, despite his failings, believed in the power of God and with God's enabling, did the work God called me to do. And I hope that every single one of you here today will also be remembered that way. That despite your failings, you are a man or a woman or a young person who believed in the power of God, made known to us in Jesus Christ, and with God's name, you got on with it and you did what God has called you to do. Thank you. Shall we pray? Lord God, we turn to you knowing that you are the God of Samson. And we've looked at the story and we've seen who you are. We see your grace, we see your power. We see the sort of people you can use in the most unexpected and almost bizarre ways to bring about your plans and your purposes. And we see that at the end of the day, faith is what matters. <coughs> and so we pray for faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith by which our sins can be covered and by which we can be transformed, renewed, if we trust in the work of Christ. May each one of us here be amongst those who despite our failings and we know there are many and we be those who believe in you and are enabled by you to do the things that you call us to do. Hear us and use us for your own glory and keep us through the rest of our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen.